0: Welcome to the Supported Living Property Podcast with your host, me, Lisa Brown, the place to learn about supported living property investing. In this episode, Carol Neal discusses why she's determined to deliver high quality property for the social housing sector and how having the right approach to developing supported living property is so important. She talks about developing property for tenants with a range of support needs, Carol shares some differences to consider when developing property for supported living rather than open market rental. She discusses the importance of location and having alternate exits when selecting a property for supported living. Thank you for joining us today, Carol.
1: Thanks for having me here. Um, Shall we start with a little bit about you and your background? Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, So I originally started in the hotel industry, trained as a hotel general manager and then went into sales and marketing, worked in America for a while, and I've worked all over the UK. Um, I've done a lot of work in five-star hotels. So I think that the service industry background has rubbed off into what I do today, which is why maybe I go a bit overboard with the service that we provide to the clients. So I think that's kind of where all that comes from, because i am it's ingrained in me um, to be the service provider.
0: That makes sense. Oh, and how did you get into property? That seems from that. from
1: that um, Kind of by accident, really, like most people, I think. I think, you know, it's the British obsession. Uh, when my daughter was really young, she would be like seven or eight. And we would go for drives, which drove her mad because i would be driving to look at properties and see what they were like and see where there were derelict buildings and that sort of thing. Um, and eventually I went into property purely by chance. I don't even remember actually how it happened, but I lived in Worcester at the time and we had a Remax franchise there. And I ended up becoming an associate in there. So basically an associate is somebody that takes a desk, works in the office one day a week, you're self-employed, any leads that come in on the day that you have the desk, they're yours. And you you just basically work in the office and the money you earn is from sales that you have achieved yourself throughout the course of the month. So is that an estate agency? Yeah. So yeah. So Remax is actually, it's really strange because in England nobody seems to really know who they are, but it's actually the largest real estate company in the world. Oh okay. They are a franchise. They're like century 21. Oh, okay. So in Ireland um they're really well known. I think they're pretty well known in Scotland. Just in England, it seems to be that it hasn't taken off in the same way. There's quite a few remax offices in London, but um, and Sleaford, that kind of area, okay. it's, it's really interesting. But mm-hmm. for me, it was good because I had autonomy. Um, I was a single parent, and I wanted to work around my daughter's school life. I didn't want the constraints of um, being controlled in yeah. terms of my time.
0: And so you could dictate your diary a bit more. Yeah, that yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, so that, that worked really, really well for me. And I was really lucky. There was a girl in there who was great at listing, um, and I was good at the selling. And we teamed up, and, you know, that really worked for us. Brilliant. Um, and through that, I then met... It's bizarre how things happen, <laughs> is it? Um, I met a guy in Nottingham who introduced me to other people and you know i ended up meeting the owner of alexon who introduced me to his son who was a hedge fund manager who introduced me to all his friends who were hedge fund managers and so it went on from there really you know and i can remember being in my middle (laughs) age, um sitting you know at the table with all these young men in their 30s all been to Eaton and Millfield and who knows where else, thinking, what the hell am I doing here? um it was just amazing, completely amazing. But I I tended to do more off market deals in those days, more land shopping centers. I was more of a trader, a broker. And um, so you're selling to these investors specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I would know, you know, um one of the hedge fund managers, let's just throw a name in there, you know, Apollo. And you know he would look at the, the the project, and he would know if any of the funds were buying within the company. Um, you know, and and he might introduce me to somebody to talk to, and blah blah blah. And That's kind of how it went. Really exciting, mm. um, and huge rewards for that kind of thing, and also really different to what I do now because no emotion. Yeah, you know they literally look at the project, look at the figures. And it either works or it doesn't, mm. but it can take a long time for anything to come to fruition. You know, you can work on something for a year before it actually, and it can fall over at the last minute. Oh, yeah, but you know, it was very, very exciting to do that kind of thing. So, how
0: did you go from from that to doing your own work?
1: Because uh, we had the uh, recession, and the recession caused me a lot of pain. And um, sort of after the recession, I did a lot of TV watching and wine drinking. And then I kind of came back out of hibernation. And when I came back out of hibernation, the people that I had worked with previously, most of them had moved on. Some had gone to prison, some were dead. Mm -hmm. It was just that kind of situation. And unless you're mixing with those people weekly, you lose that continuity because you're not relevant really anymore. You mm-hmm. know, and it, it would be great to say they all liked you and they were your friends and blah, 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 but it's business. Yeah. So, and they, they'd they left their jobs, a lot of them. You know, they'd gone off into uh, commodities or wind farming or something else. So I kind of started again, and I started again basically from where I'd been before, which is really being an estate agent. Mm. And but obviously just for myself, and I just started talking to clients that I used to have before, looking for deals, and it sort of evolved back from there, really, but in on a much much smaller scale, you know, so that you were earning small amounts of money, a bit more like pound stretcher than Harvey Nichols. That's a
0: good analogy.
1: (laughs) And, And then, how did you discover supported living? How did that come about? So that's bizarre because, you know, if I go back into my memory bank, <clears throat> I remember a million years ago walking around some streets with my mum. And at the time I was doing some multi-level marketing thing because my my life's a bit like the stock market. And I remember seeing this child with the most disgusting nappy on. And I remember looking through the window and seeing what appeared to be two adults sitting at this table drinking beer from cans and just thinking oh my god how can this happen how can people live like this how can it be like this now i know that i haven't changed those kinds of situations um, but what i did later on was because when i'd had the problem myself of everything going pear-shaped in the recession and knowing how close it is from being drinking Bollinger at the Savoy to basically, I don't know, having a Greg's sausage roll. It's just so easy how that can happen in your life. And I think people just don't realise and they just take it for granted and they think that everybody who is homeless or without a house or can't get food are just people who don't care or don't try or, and that's not the truth. No. They might have been amazing corporate executives, but something awful has happened in their life and they haven't been able to cope. Yeah. And I can so relate to that. And I was really lucky because I've got amazing friends and I've got great family. So I never ended up in that situation. But, you know, I have a propensity to get melancholy. So, you know, if you haven't got people there checking up on you and you can easily lapse and be where they are. Um, And so, and I also used to see the shitty places that they were put in, Mm. and that used to really bother me because how can people have any self-esteem or worth if you don't treat them like a proper human being? Mm. Um, So when I came back into the uh, property sector, one of my remits, you know, you do the 70, 20, 10, whatever, you know, so part of my remit was that I would try and work within the social housing sector in one way or another, to try to see how I could help provide accommodation in a good way. um, And work with people who were also doing it for the right reasons. So when I did start doing it, um, you know, I have come across housing providers that in my opinion, are not good people. They're not doing it for the right reasons. They're just doing it to make loads of money. That's why I do not work with them. Um, I've come across councils who don't seem to be looking after the people. They live in disgusting places. And again, I, I, I don't work with them. And I found three or four providers who I really like, who have a really good ethos and attitude who all seem to have nice staff, and the staff all seem to care. You know, I've never heard one of them say a bad thing, and they all get on and get it done. Um, And then, you know, I just started working with them and finding properties in the right areas, um, making sure that they look really nice. So I don't do anything different in a supported living accommodation property than I would in a private investor's property. The only thing that I might do different is I might not spend as much money on things like the taps and the tiles but you know aesthetically if you walk in you would just still think wow this is nice because I want those people to feel good and I want them to get better and I want them to get a job and I mean, ideally, what I'd really like to be able to do is work with investors who saw the value in buying bigger buildings and putting in facilities where people can learn and get help with interviewing and CVs and, you know, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah,
0: like you the know? community cafe kind yeah. of model. Yeah, yeah.
1: there's a guy in Birmingham, I think his company's called Greenleaf. Um, he used to work at Cadbury's and he's got an amazing model. And, you know, he's done so much good yeah. for people. And I think that model is is really great. And, and we should work more towards that because yeah. just providing accommodation isn't enough. Mm. It helps. It helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and especially the ones that we do because we have people that go and check two or three times a week on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they help them with budgeting and looking after themselves and, you know, buying food and planning and that sort of stuff. But it's still not enough, you know, you need to be saving for them and putting money away so that Mm -hmm. when they do go out on their own, they've actually got the money that will help support them. Um, But yeah, that's kind of the sort of projects that I do.
0: So what kind of of tenant group is that Carol that you're working with?
1: um, A lot of the time. So, I mean, we actually have one house, which is all benefit tenants, Mm -hmm. which we do ourselves. And you know what, honestly, apart from one of them, they're all actually really, and he's actually really nice when he's not on drugs, but they're just nice guys who terrible things have happened to. Mm. And they're all just trying to bring their lives back together. So, you know, I spend, if I'm in the area, you know, I'll go in and see them and just chat and make sure they're okay. And, but, but for the most part, most of the people we work with are um, either people with mental health problems, Um, we we do, we have done some rehabilitation clients, you know, who've maybe been in prison for petty crimes and are are, you know integrating back into society. But we we cover quite a lot. I mean, the only things we don't do are very serious crime. You know, we 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 won't we don't want to work with that tenant group because it's quite difficult. If you have a property in the middle of nowhere, then you can work with those kind of people because obviously everybody deserves a second chance but it's quite hard if you're putting those people next to elderly neighbours and people with young children because people judge don't they they can't help it they just do so it makes it quite hard
0: Hmm. and so with the supported living properties that you've done give us an example of something that you've done recently what kind of property
1: um so the one that we've just finished um, is a pub that we converted. um We that's in Oldham, not mm-hmm. too far from where I, I live, and we've converted that into eleven units. And they there is there is a small one at thirteen square meters, but most of them are twenty to twenty six square meters. Oh, well, so quite small still. Yeah, um, yeah, because it's actually yeah. an HMO. Right. Okay. So we've got five rooms on the bottom and five on the top. Oh, okay. Um, and then we've got two kitchens and two living rooms. Right. Um, yeah. And all their rooms are big enough, plenty big enough for mm. sofas and yeah. you know everything else. They've all got kitchenettes in. We mm. always do that so that they can be self-contained. And the other thing is, you know, I think that we should take conscious of people's um, allergy requirements and also their religious beliefs. You know, because if you've got certain beliefs you don't want your things and your food mixed with other people's
0: in a shared kitchen situation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so we have the kitchen and it has everything in it, but in everybody's room, I put a kitchen, a sink, a cupboard. Um, They've all, we do electric in all our properties. We don't do any gas Mm -hmm. and we've got fridges and freezers so they can all be completely self-contained.
0: That's a really important point, isn't it? That people don't think about with shared housing, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I want them to, I don't want them to be stressed, mm. you know, and it's just so, you know, if, if they've got no money and they put their stuff in the kitchen and somebody comes home and they've drunk too much or they've been taking drugs or whatever, mm. you know, they'll just help themselves, won't they? They won't care. No, And that then causes the other person to have unnecessary aggravation. Mm. And that's not what we want. We We want them to get better and well and move on. So, yeah. So, yeah, you, that, that's the last one that we've done. It's got a massive car park. It's completely self-contained, big double gates away from it. There's nothing else there. You know, there are no residents close by. You've got a park yeah. opposite um, and there's one person who lives next door. And then you've got a church and that's it. There's nothing else there at all. So that's perfect. A lot of the stuff that we do are either um, offices that we change into flats. Um, but we do actually do quite a lot of shared houses. Okay. Yeah, we do quite a lot of shared houses. Mm.
0: So, what sort of size shared houses, Carol? Is there a sort of
1: regular HMOs, you know, mm. with rooms that are like 12 square meters and they've got shared kitchens because those houses are for people to learn to live with other people. Right. Okay. You know, to learn to share, to learn to get on, to learn mm. to integrate because, and um, And it's interesting because the way that we do it sometimes is they'll go into the shared house and then they'll go into a halfway house and then they'll go into their own.
0: What would the halfway house be like? What would that, why is that That
1: would have less people. Right, okay. But it would still be supported. Mm -hmm. But then they'd go in, the third one would be their own flat or their own house.
0: And in these kind of scenarios, you haven't got staff on site 24 hours a day? No,
1: they come two or three times a week. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, we we have done some care leavers, mm. um, and they're always individual units, they're always one-bed flats, mm-hmm. and they're for people who are so young. I mean, my God, it's so sad, you know, mm. to be finishing your foster care, and then you've nowhere to go. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, charities have got to provide you with accommodation and support to try and help you learn how to get a job and look after yourself yeah yeah and those people are only like 18.
0: there's a it's look, being looked at very closely at the moment by the children's commissioner isn't it about whether about continuing the support better because it is a really big problem you know
1: yeah
0: we've got some you know again some children as young as 16 are in some of these situations. You uh,
1: know? My sister's a foster carer and she's had the children um god I don't know I feel like it's seven years now and you know there's no way that she would abandon them no when they got to an age where there was no money coming in anymore
0: sometimes it's not as simple as that though is it's so in some local authorities the funding stops at 16 there's all kinds of
1: oh no no absolutely and, yeah. and that might happen to my sister yeah. but she would yeah. never yeah. let them be left on their own to fend yeah. for themselves because yeah. why are you doing it otherwise
0: it's it's really complex, isn't it? Yeah. From, a prop, from a property point of view, the the like the pub that you've done recently was that furnished? Did you hand that over? Furnished?
1: Yeah, so I always furnish everything. Do you? Um, yeah, I do, and I don't know. I want there to be a certain standard. Now, to be fair, I don't use the same furniture in the social housing projects as I do in the private projects, mm-hmm. and I do use very solid, very sturdy new furniture but I have to take into consideration what will happen if the housing provider has to change it and what I don't want is to put them in a situation where they can't find the replacement and it costs them a fortune Mm. you know I don't want to add that so I always try to find things that are easily available and a solid and sturdy and hopefully won't get wrecked and mm-hmm. um, or that you know it's something that isn't easy for the i mean if you went to ikea and bought a 35 pound wardrobe it'd be finished in a week but yeah. you know the stuff that we put in is really solid and heavy so it's harder for them to to spoil
0: yeah so okay. those
1: are the things we try to take into consideration one of the other things i do do as well which is kind of weird is i put single beds in okay and the reason i do that is again to try and overcome a problem, because if you've only got a single bed, you're less likely to invite someone to stay with you.
0: Right, that makes sense. And
1: so that means that there are less problems for the provider, um, you know, and, and for me, ultimately. So, yeah, we, we just I know that's a bit weird, but
0: I know it makes sense because you, you carry on managing the properties don't you, you have a different you don't work with the housing association. You tend to manage them yourself, Carol. So What that-
1: happens with us is we have a corporate contract with our clients and we're the middle person. So we work with the providers and we work with the client who owns the property. And the reason we do that is that. Um it's very hard, i think for a provider to work with hundreds of different landlords because everybody's got a different agenda mm. and i generally only hand over properties that we have bought and renovated because i know then the standard that they're up to and and, and that's not exclusive but generally
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean we have done properties that belong to other people and that we've taken them on so I want to be sure that if there's a problem, it gets dealt with straight away. Whereas if you can't get hold of the person that owns it or they live abroad and there's a different time, it just becomes a hassle for the provider. And I want it to be easy for them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's just that thing in me. I just want everything to be easier for people. Um, and, and and it just works really well. You know, if they ring me up and say there's a leak, it will be dealt with within a few hours. Mm. Whereas if you've got to wait for the owner to come back, they might want um, a lot of information about the problem and blah, blah, blah. Whereas I make a judgment call. Yeah. I'm really lucky that my investors trust me and they don't have a problem with that. No. So you're kind of
0: like for a lot of setups, they will have a housing association doing that housing management and sitting in the middle. You're essentially doing that role for the providers you work with, aren't you? Really?
1: Yeah. 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 And I would never spend anybody's money willy nilly. No, no. But
0: but it needs to be maintained to a good standard, doesn't it? For the tenants that you...
1: And that's what I make really clear to the investors. Mm. You know, if you are going to argue about a radiator that's not working, we can't work together. No. Because, you know, we have to maintain the standard and we can't be arguing about stuff like this obviously i would always get quotes if it was something that was more than 100 pounds let's say Mm. and so on and so forth but we have to be responsive because you know you can't have people living in a place with no heating no Uh, you know an example i went to a place the other day that we're buying four flats turns out that there's a housing association have the one of the flats and they sublease it to the, co- to the council, oh my God, as soon as we complete, they're getting terminated. Really? The standard was appalling. You know, and then you think to yourself, so you've got the owner, you've got the agent, you've got the housing association, and you've got the council. Who's taking responsibility? Yeah. And that's why um, we take responsibility, mm. and we manage the process between everybody.
0: It's about doing your due diligence on the people you work with, I guess, isn't it? And understanding, you know, who's going to take that responsibility and who's going to maintain your property for you. That's that's really key, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And I I just think a lot of people, they have an an attitude of, um, right, that's it. You know, somebody's in there for three years. I don't need to do anything. And you do.
0: What do you think? What do you think needs to be done, Carol?
1: Well, you need to manage to maintain it, to look after it. You know, you, you you need to have the right attitude. You need to understand that these are your clients. These are the people that are paying your wages. These are the people that are making you money. So you have to have respect for them. Just because they're homeless, you still have to have the same respect, because you're still getting the same money for them.
0: Mm absolutely I think it's trickier with some tenant groups where you can't as a landlord you can't go in because of because of the vulnerabilities because of that so there is an element of having to do your due diligence on who's doing the housing management for you that they're going to do that well you know
1: yeah so that's (coughs) what we do um so that's why you know so I've got 20 properties under contract but I can go into any of them at any time because there's only me yeah. Whereas if there were twenty different landlords, that creates a problem in itself. Yeah. So if I ring up and say, "Do you mind if I just come and have a look at this week?" They'll be like, "Yeah, of course, no problem." So I can always go and check up on the properties, send pictures back or a video, and you know, it makes the investor feel better that knowing that their properties are being looked after. Okay. Yeah. And if there is a problem, then you know, I just deal with the provider. And generally, they they deal with it straight away. Mm. You know, they're really good. So I'm lucky. I'm, I'm lucky well, in that respect. But I think
0: you've also made the choice of who you work with, Carol, <laughs> haven't you? So that, you know, you've done your due diligence, you know the providers you're happy to work with who are going to be more responsive and and manage things, you know. And yeah,
1: that. and people who care, you know. They're not just doing it to have a nice house mm. abroad and drive a Range Rover. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And, and what tips would you give property investors who are looking at supported living?
1: Do it for the right reasons. I mean, like really do it for the right reasons. Um, so <clears throat> when we buy property, one of the things that I try to make sure of, um, and I'd say that we do this 95% of the time. Um, and that is I always buy property that's near a train station, near oh. shops. Um, would always let as a family home or could always be converted into a private HMO because there's no point in buying a property that's in a skanky area because it's only got one purpose then. Yeah. You know, you've got to have multiple exits because it may not always work out. The government may change their policies. New legislation might come in play and, you know, what you thought was a safe contract no longer is so you need to know that you can change it to something else
0: It's your long term investment, isn't it? So you need to make sure you've, like you say, you've got those other exits because things do change. You know, where the majority of providers were looking at HMOs previously, increasing numbers are looking at self contained flats, aren't they? You know, I think although there's still demand for HMOs, I think it's less demand than there was. And, you know, I I think that trend has changed. So who knows what the trend will be in 10 years' time, you know? Yeah. uh, So we
1: stopped doing HMOs really um, on any scale a, a few years ago and we went for more of a hybrid. So, you know, we would buy an office, for example, change that into five units and they would all have, they're like their own flats <clears throat> and they, they'd have inclusive bills, but they'd pay their own council tax and broadband. Right. So it's kind of a bit of a hybrid model so that we can use them for anything and everything. Mm. And when, because when you've got an HMO, that's what you've got. Yeah. Nothing else. You can't use it for anything else because you can't put serviced accommodation in there if you've got an empty room because you've got other people in there. Mm. So you know it it doesn't for me it doesn't work as well. No, um, and I think I've become more paranoid about looking after other people's money, especially working with investors like I do, which are abroad. Yeah, who don't see you, they don't see the property. Everything is on trust. Yeah, you know. So I'm more conscious of what's going to happen because I I don't you know I just I I don't want them having because I see so many investors that have put their trust in people and they've really been ripped off
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know the property's not been finished properly or it's not been looked after and it's just such a shame because everybody's not rich they might have saved up all their life it might have been you know a relative who's died that have given them the money Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should assume that just because people are investing in property that they're loaded.
0: No. And even if they are, you still need to, they're trusting you with their money. It's yeah, like, of course. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. But I would definitely say don't do supported accommodation because you think it's the new avocado on toast. <laughs> uh, I, I I, think you should actually genuinely care um, about the people and try and, and help in other ways on the periphery. You know, like help with local charities, Um, help by just walking around the town centre with the charities, giving out food and coffee and, you know, going to local food bank and helping, just do something else as well.
0: Really understand it as well, really understand what you're doing and what you're working with, yeah. Just
1: try and change the way the modus operandi currently is. Mm. Because Mm. if if all we do is think, all oh, right. I'll have a house on uh, supported living and that gives me three, five, ten years guaranteed income. But we don't actually involve ourselves in the process and how will anything ever get changed? It will never make a difference.
0: I know, absolutely. I think that's brilliant, Carol. Thank you ever so much for that. It was really, really great talking to you. Thanks for sharing your experience. Thank, Thank you,
1: you, Lisa. Bye.